Welcome once again. My name's Chad. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're going to kick off a new series entitled Surprise. Look who's coming over for Christmas. Just want to do a quick poll here. Anybody here like surprises? Anybody here enjoy the unexpected? You like the unknown? Anybody here kind of like to avoid surprises? You know, you rather like to have a plan and execute the plan. Anybody here just love surprises? You like live for the moment. Every day is a new adventure. Anybody out there, you just love surprises? Well, I'm kind of on the, on the surprise spectrum, the kind of guy that likes surprises. I don't know if I love them, but I kind of enjoy them as long as they're good. You know, as long as they're a fun surprise, right? As long as it's enjoyable. Because, you know, there are some surprises in life that aren't so fun. You know, the, the job loss, the car accident, you know, the health crisis. Those surprises I'd rather avoid. But the fun ones, you know, that gift from an unexpected, uh, from an unexpected friend at an unexpected time, you know, that, that call, that word of encouragement, that, that birthday present that I don't really need but I would really enjoy. It's those types of surprises that I tend to enjoy. And in the Christmas story, there are so many surprises. There are good ones and there are not so good ones. There are fun ones and there are challenging ones. There's a way to kick off our series, Surprise, Look Who's Coming Over for Christmas. I'd like to do just a quick exercise. I'd like you to think about the story of Christmas. Think, think about the birth of Jesus and see if you can remember some of the unexpected events. Some of the unexpected surprises related to the birth of Jesus. Do you have a couple of those in your mind? All right, now I want you to turn to your neighbor or someone that you don't know very well and ask them the question, hey, what are some of the surprises at Christmas? What are some of the surprises at the Christmas story? Go ahead and do that now. Introduce yourself and see if you can list down some of the surprises at Christmas. Well, there are all sorts of surprises. There are all sorts of unexpected events, all sorts of things that you might not expect at the birth of God, at the story of Christmas. And I can tell that you guys got engaged in that a little bit. That's good to see. We're going to carry that theme throughout our Christmas series. But let's just make a list of some of the surprises at Christmas. The first one that I came up with was a barnyard delivery, right? Not many people are born in a barn. Sometimes we think that our children are raised in a barn, but not many people were born in a barn. There was no room at the inn. Surprise. How about a pregnant, unwed teenager? Right? That was a bit of surprise. Mary was with child. Joseph almost divorced his young bride-to-be. And then we have this virgin birth. That doesn't happen every day, right? A surprise at Christmas. And then here's a bad one. The murder of innocent babies. Anybody have that one on their list of surprises? This tragic event where Herod was afraid of this coming king. So we had all the babies murdered in that town of David. And then here's another one. The angelic Visitors. Anybody have the angels on their list of surprises? And there were multiple surprises from these angels. First, they were declaring, you know, they were singing this multitude of angels. But then they were speaking in dreams to Joseph and Mary and visiting people on earth through their dreams. Another surprise was the trip to Egypt. You know, they, they didn't win an all-expensive-paid trip to Egypt. This was a, a, they fled to Egypt. They were running for their lives. And so these first family fled to Egypt. Then we have these visitors from the east, these stargazers that came to worship the one true king and their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh surprised 
And then we have these shepherds at the birth of Christ. And then here's the big one, God becoming man. Surprise, here he is becoming man. See, there are all sorts of surprises, all sorts of unexpected events scattered through the story of Christmas. Well, one of my favorite surprises, one of the most fascinating surprises is the genealogy of Jesus. The guest list of people invited to celebrate the birth of Christ. There's a very surprising list of people on the genealogy of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today and over the next few weeks. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, page 955 in your pew Bibles. And as you're turning there, I'm going to just set the context for the book of Matthew. This genealogy in particular that Matthew writes. See, Matthew was a Jewish man. Matthew, the author of the book that bears his name, was a disciple, a follower of Christ. And he records the life and teachings of Jesus. And he has a target audience in mind. Matthew's particularly writing to a Jewish audience in the first century. He's not writing to us. He's writing to this Jewish audience in the first century. And those people back then had one question related to the coming Messiah. They wanted to know if Jesus was connected to David. Because there was this prophecy in the book of Jeremiah and other parts of Scripture that connects Jesus to David. So they wanted to know. Their one question was, is Jesus connected to David? Is he in the family line, in the family tree? And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read the following. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And right away, Matthew affirms that, answers that question, yes, Jesus the Christ is the son of of David. And he just doesn't write David one time. In these first 18 verses, Matthew repeats the name of David five times. He wants everyone to know. He wants that question to be answered that, yes, Jesus is in the family tree of David. But then something surprising happens. Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac is the father of Jacob. Jacob is the father of Judah and his brothers. And we know those are very familiar names and not too many surprises in this genealogy of Jesus. And then we read this. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, who was the mother of Tamar. Now, I don't know if you know the story of Judah and Tamar. We're going to read that story next week. But one of the things that jump up, jump out to us about Tamar is that Tamar is a mother. Tamar was a woman. And in ancient genealogies, women were not included. In a male-dominated society, women were overlooked, especially in genealogies. But here, Matthew writes a woman. He writes Tamar's name on the guest list and the genealogy of Jesus. And we have to answer, ask the question, why? Why does Matthew include Tamar? Well, he continues with some more surprises. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And the original reader's eyes would have popped. Their jaws would have dropped. And those of you familiar with the Bible know that Rahab was a prostitute. She, she sold her body for money. 
Not a profession worth striving for. I'm sure when Rahab was a, was a child and her parents asked her the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? She didn't say prostitute. She didn't say harlot. But that's who she was. That's what she did. That was her profession. And here we see this professional harlot, this, this, this prostitute in the line of Jesus. Why is that in there? Ancient genealogies were written in such a way to make people look good. When there was a genealogy of a king, it was highlighted the, the military uh, victories, the, the, the sons that carried out the mission and the purposes of the king. And some of those wayward sons, they were kind of excluded. But here we have this wayward daughter of God, this harlot, this prostitute in the genealogy of Jesus. And the question is, why? Why would Matthew surprise us at Christmas? Why is Rahab and Tamar and Judah on the guest list for the party of Christ? And then he continues, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, Ruth is a good story. Ruth is a familiar story. Ruth is another woman in the genealogy of Jesus. But Ruth is an outsider. She's a foreigner. She's a Moabite. And the Israelites and the Moabites weren't always on the best of terms. So here we have this this Moabite, this, this foreigner in the line of Jesus. So maybe Jesus' blood isn't as pure as we might expect. There's this foreigner, this Moabite in the line of Jesus. And then we read this. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Finally, he gets to David. The question that everyone was asking, is Jesus connected to the king? Is he connected to David? And Matthew answers that, yes. But then he adds a little commentary. Then he adds a few more words about David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And everyone reading this genealogy and everyone reading these words of Matthew would have known who Matthew was talking about. And even many of us know who was the wife of Uriah. Who was it? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Another man's wife, Bathsheba. Instead of writing David was the father of Solomon, Matthew highlights one of David's deepest wounds, one of his biggest mistakes. And the question is why? Why not just get right to David? Why tell all these commentaries? Why go you know, on these sideways conversations? Why not just get to the point, Matthew, and connect Jesus to David? Why so many surprises at Christmas? We've got to remember that Matthew knew Jesus. Matthew walked with Jesus for over three years. Matthew talked with Jesus. He heard from Jesus. He heard the teachings of Jesus. He saw Jesus heal people like paralyzed people, like lepers. He, he saw Jesus forgive sinners. He saw Jesus hanging out with sinners. And when God inspired Matthew to write down the story of Jesus, the story of Christmas, the first thing that Matthew wanted his readers to know was this, that Jesus not only came for sinners, that he came from sinners, that Jesus came from a long line of broken, unwanted, unclean foreigners that many people considered distant from God. That Jesus didn't just come for sinners, he came from sinners, that God loves sinners. Christ identifies himself with the unwanted, 
with the unaccepted and the unclean and the outcast. You see, for a long time, people approached God based on their performance. People approached God based on the law, seeing if they followed the law, if they fulfilled their religious obligations, if they did what was right, if they kept their nose clean, then they were good with God. And, and, and at the end of their lives, if there were enough good deeds passed out their bad deeds, then they would get into heaven. But if they didn't do right, if they didn't keep their nose clean, if they didn't follow the law, if they didn't do the religious obligations, if they, if they dated girls that were a little bit on the outside, or, or if they did things that were wrong, then they were out with God. Then they weren't in. See, their, their relationship with God was based on their performance. If they did good, then they were in. And what Matthew says to us and to his first readers is that just is not true. All are welcome at the table to celebrate the birth of Jesus. All are welcome to celebrate Christ. The men and the women and the foreigners and the prostitutes. And the adulterers and the murderers, all are welcome to celebrate Jesus. Even the tax collectors. You know, that's what Matthew was, right? You know that. Before Matthew wrote this wonderful gospel, before Matthew wrote this story that we're reading this this morning, Matthew wasn't a priest. He he, he wasn't a religious educator like Paul. He he wasn't a, a doctor like Luke. Matthew was... A tax collector. Matthew was the lowest of lows. See, people hated tax collectors. People hated tax collectors. Throughout the scriptures, we often read these two groups of people associated with one another. It was the tax collectors and the sinners. See, the tax collectors were considered sinners. They were considered unclean. They were distant from God. They were considered traitors. Because they were collecting money for the Roman Empire. This Roman oppressor that was ruling over Palestine at the time. They were the lowest of lows. They were traitors. It was like committing treason to collect taxes. See, initially, the Roman uh, Empire had Roman citizens collecting taxes in Palestine. This is how it worked. A, A Roman citizen would go to Rome and they would actually buy the privilege of working as a tax collector. And they worked for about five years. And during that time, they would go to some city like Palestine and they would set up their tax collector's booth and they would collect taxes. And the way that they would make their money, they would add a surcharge to the Roman tax. And that's how they would make their money. And they would make some good money because there were a lot of taxes back then. I mean, there was a, an income tax, a food tax, a port tax. There were, there were all sorts of different taxes that, that the Romans were forcing upon the people. And because there were so many taxes, these tax collectors were wealthy. And many of them significantly raised the taxes on the people. But although they were wealthy, although they had a lot of money, they didn't have a lot of friends. Because people hated the tax collectors. You know, when, 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 they were, when their kids were going to school, their, their kids were getting picked on. You know, they were getting avoided. They were rejected. So many people didn't want to work as tax collectors. So then this Roman Empire had an idea. They said, we're going to hire Jewish people to collect taxes from Jewish people. And we're going to provide this wealthy wage for Jewish people to, to earn a living and to collect the money. And they're going to live in the community. We don't have to send them far away to get money for Rome. And so the Jew, or for the Romans recruited Jewish people to raise the taxes on Jewish people. 
And the Jews thought this was the worst profession a Jew could have. It was like raising money for the enemy. Because Rome was this oppressive government over the the Palestinian world, over the whole empire. And now these Jews were collecting money for the enemy. It was considered treason. It it was like the worst thing you can do. Tax collectors were considered the scum of the earth. They were traitors. They were yellow bellies. I mean, nobody associated themselves with tax collectors except for other sinners, other people. And that's who Matthew was. He was a tax collector. He was an embarrassment to his family. He was hated by his countrymen. Matthew was considered distant from God. He couldn't worship in the temple. He was ceremonial unclean. His only friends were other tax collectors. See, Matthew, more than any other gospel writer, understood what it meant to be a sinner. What it felt like to be unwanted unloved and unclean. And when Matthew sat down to write the story of Jesus, he wanted his readers to know that Jesus didn't just come for sinners. He came from sinners. See, Matthew didn't just write about God's love for sinners. He experienced it. He knew personally God's love for sinners. Do you remember when Matthew first met Jesus? Do you remember what Matthew was doing when he first interacted with Jesus? Do you remember the first words that Jesus said to Matthew, this first interaction that the Son of God had with Matthew? Do you remember what he was doing? He was collecting taxes. He was doing what everyone despised. And his story is in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. We read this as Jesus Went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. And where was Matthew? He's sitting at the tax collector's booth. He's sitting doing his job. He's doing what everyone despised him to do. He's a tax collector collecting taxes. And the context for understanding this story is significant. It says that Jesus went on from there. And the there where Jesus moved on from is significant. See, Jesus just got off a boat. And a group of people came right up to him. And there's a paralyzed man in need of healing. And Jesus miraculously heals the man. And people are in awe. And then he speaks to this man. Before he speaks words of of healing, he says these words to this paralyzed man. Your sins are forgiven. And the people are confused. I mean, they're in awe of Jesus' healing, but they're confused about Jesus' words that that your sins are forgiven because only God can do that. And leaving this place of healing and forgiveness of power, Jesus walks up to Matthew, sitting at the tax collectors with all of a sudden Almighty God, the guy that just healed and forgave a paralyzed man, the Son of God walks up to the sinner. This despised, rejected man named Matthew collecting taxes as if he was going to receive a tax from Jesus. And what does Jesus say to Matthew? What are Jesus' first words to Matthew? This is what they are. Follow me, he told them. He told him and Matthew got up and followed him. Follow me. Jesus didn't say, hey, Matthew, clean up your act. 
Hey, Jesus didn't say, hey, Matthew, stop, stop stealing from your countrymen and giving money to the enemy. Jesus didn't say, Matthew, you are a sinner. You got to stop doing what you do and you're a traitor. You're a disgrace. Jesus didn't say any of those things. The first words that Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. Laka harai. Come join me in the movement of changing the world. Come join this new community of faith. See, Jesus did the unexpected. Jesus did what no other rabbi was doing at the time. Jesus invited a tax collector to follow him, to be his disciple, to be his student. No other, ta- no other rabbi was, was inviting tax collectors to join them. I mean, they were hated. Most religious leaders of the day, they hated the tax collectors, but Jesus loved them. God loved them. Jesus came from sinners. Jesus surprised us by inviting Matthew to join him. And he doesn't stop the surprise there. Jesus continues with his surprise. He doesn't simply invite Matthew to follow him. Somewhere between verse 9 and verse 10, Matthew asks Jesus, Hey, Matthew, where are we going? I'm kind of hungry. And and Jesus says, I'm glad you asked, because we're going to your house for dinner. I want to eat with you. I want to eat with your friends. I want to, and because Matthew's only friends were other tax collectors, other sinners, that's who Matthew invites to the table. In verse 10, we read this. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. They had dinner together. They ate together. I know we have fast food and we kind of eat on the run, but back then it was slow food. Back then, when you, when you shared a meal with a family member or a friend, it, it meant something. I mean, it, it was a long occasion. It, it meant that you were loyal, that you were committed, that you were accepted. It was this intimate, loyal friendship. And Jesus ate this meal with many tax collectors and sinners. Notice Jesus didn't eat with those at the temple. Jesus didn't eat with the religious leaders. Jesus didn't have, have lunch with the Pharisees. Jesus ate with many tax collectors and sinners, the unwanted and the unaccepted. And apparently, the religious leaders didn't know what to do with Jesus. They didn't understand Jesus. They were confused with Jesus. They saw Jesus heal a paralyzed man, clearly an act of God, but now he's partying with tax collectors. Now he's out with the renegades. He's out with the tax collectors and the sinners, and they don't know what to do, so they huddle up. And they're talking to each other and they say, doesn't Jesus know, you know, that if he eats with these people, he's affirming their behavior. I mean, doesn't he know that that he needs to just tell those guys to stop taking taxes and to clean up their act? I mean, doesn't doesn't Jesus know that tax collectors are considered unclean? They got like spiritual cooties, you know, that they if you get too close to them, you are unclean and you can't worship at the temple. Doesn't Jesus know that? And, and these, these spiritual leaders, these, these Pharisees, they're confused and they're asking questions. And then one of them steps up and he asks the disciples this question. Verse 10. Sorry, verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, this meaning eating with tax collectors and sinners, the, they asked the disciples, why does, G, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? Why does he eat with the unwanted, the unclean, and the broken, the unaccepted? Why does Jesus eat with the tax collectors? And the sinners, that's a great question. 
It's a great question for us to ask and answer today. Why does Jesus eat with the unwanted and the unaccepted? Why does he eat with the sinners? Well, Jesus answers that question on hearing this. Verse 12, Jesus said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Why? For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. I have not come for the clean, but the unclean. I have not come for the righteous, but the sinners. The reason why I came down from heaven to earth is for the sinners. Because I love sinners. I'm a friend of sinners. I came from sinners. I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for the people that have it all together. I didn't come for the self-righteous. I didn't come for those that think if they follow the rules and they follow the law, then they're in. I came for the ones that know that they're broken, that they're unclean. They have nothing good to offer God. I came for the sinners. I came for those who know they don't have it all together. I came for the Tamars and the Rahabs and the Bathshebas and the Davids of the world. See, most people back then and most people today approach God based on their behavior. Christian and non-Christian in life, we, we, we approach God based on our behavior that if we do the right things, if we keep our nose clean, if we follow the rules, if we don't do anything wrong, then we're going to enter into God's good graces. That when we die, if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, then we're in heaven. And, and even in our prayer life, if we're keeping our nose clean, if we're staying pure, then God's going to answer our prayers, or He's going to bless our acts of service, or He's going to get me what we want, what we want. And we approach God based on our work, rather than the work that God did for us. And God says to each one of us this morning, Surprise! 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 He says, surprise! Look who's coming over for Christmas. Look who's changing the way that we approach God. Not based on our performance, not based on what we do or what we don't do, but based on what Jesus did for us. See, access to God is no longer about us. It's no longer about our good deeds. See, the good religious deeds no longer get us a seat at the table. Jesus says, I am a friend of sinners. I came for sinners and I came from sinners. That's why I left the riches of heaven to come to earth. That's why I broke perfect communion with my heavenly father to die on the cross. That's why I came down to die in your place to pay the penalty for your sins. See, this is the story of Jesus. This is the story of Christmas. This is what the angel declared that we are going to have a savior of the world. And what is he going to save us from? From our sins. Jesus saves us from our sins. See, at Christmas, we celebrate a gift. We celebrate the gift of his son, the gift of a savior, the gift of righteousness. An approach to God, not based on our good work, but based upon the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus on the cross. But you know who had the hardest time 
celebrating the gift of Christmas. You know who had the hardest time with this gift of Christ? It was the religious folk. It was the church folk. It was the people that studied the Bible, the people that prayed, the people that gave. It was the church, the religious folk that had the hardest time accepting the gift of Jesus. And maybe that's why it wasn't the Romans who killed Jesus, but it was the religious that wanted Jesus to die. Because they could not identify themselves with the Rahabs, with the prostitutes, with the Rus, with the Tamars, with the Davids of the world. And they missed Christmas. See, at Christmas, we celebrate that Jesus is a friend of sinners. That Jesus loves sinners. That Jesus came from people like Rahab and Judah and David. And people came for people. Jesus came for people like Matthew and Mark and Paul and Chad and Bill and Mary and you and me. He came for us. We can identify ourselves as sinners, as broken, as, 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 as unwanted, and in need of a Savior. See, at Christmas, there are many gifts that we will open, and God has a gift for each one of us this Christmas. This Christmas, He has a wonderful gift that just might surprise us. The gift of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many, many surprises found in your word, found in the story of Christmas. We thank you for the the barnyard delivery. We thank you for the visit of the Magi. We thank you for all these wonderful surprises. But we think about this surprise of these folks included in on the genealogy of Jesus. We think about where they came from and how Jesus identifies himself with sinners. And we just ask, that you would do a work in us so that we could not be like the self-righteous, the the religious leaders of the days of Jesus and kind of pump ourselves, but we would identify with the Davids and the the Rahabs and the Tamars of the world so that we could embrace the Savior of the world this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.